The following is meant for information purposes only. Before taking any action on anything being discussed, consult your medical doctor. Welcome to Heart Health with board-certified cardiologist and internal medicine specialist, Dr. Franklin Weefald. Heart Health is a local call-in health show designed to educate and inform you of the most up-to-date information for not only maintaining a healthy heart, but a healthy body. Call us with your health questions at 919-860-9783. And of course, you can call the show right now, be on the radio in just moments. I'm Dave Alexander. Here is Dr. Franklin Weefald. Hello. Hello, David. How was your week? Uh, very good, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. on average, yours? Yeah, I, I saw some great patients this week. And I, the thing for me, I've seen some of these people for 20 years. Yeah. Very, very complicated cardiac conditions, you know, heart attacks, stents, bypasses, uh, valve replacements, defibrillators. 20 years. Yeah. And they've done well. That's good. And they're doing well. That's good. And so, you know, I see every day a testament to how great American medicine is. And I, I'm proud to be a part of it. If you'd like to talk to Dr. Franklin Weefold today, dial 919-860-9783. 919-860-9783. We also have the website hearthealthradio.com. Uh, with some articles uh, related to last week's show, including uh, the uh, something about the sunning. I don't want to Sunning talk. where the sun don't shine. Yes. Uh, flu cases are starting up around the country and in North Carolina. Uh, there's a high school student uh, or a football player who died after what you would consider – Fairly routine surgery. It happens every day. It's, it's, well, no. The death doesn't happen every right. day. But the surgery is routine. It there, happens every day. And we'll talk about it, but nobody should ever die after this kind of surgery. And there's another story about a, a family, a tragic story, suing a local hospital after the toddler died. Yeah. And the perinatal sunning at some point. At some point. At some point we're going to talk about Well, the sun's it. out right now. Do you want me to talk about it? Well, let's talk about the young child. Yes. At uh, UNC Medical Center. If you recall, I don't know, several shows ago, many yeah. shows ago, we talked about a very tough situation. UNC Children's Hospital had a cardiovascular surgery program that in the mid two teens, 2000 teens, I know it's some really serious, serious complications. They had a 50% complication rate. For simple, uh, no, no open heart surgery is simple, but for relatively low risk surgeries, such as repair of a hole in the top of the heart, they had a 50% complication rate. Well, and a complication happen. would be 6%. Yeah, but 5%. But, but what's a complication? Well, infection, yeah. death is the worst complication. Yeah. Um, having to redo the surgery, um, having a what we call a morbid complication where there's a permanent injury that's not death. Right. And so um, the New York Times uh, sleuthed it, uh, if that's a term, yeah. and they got, they got a recording from where the cardiologist – now, they're the ones who see the patients on the front lines – decide that they need a surgery, and then refer them to the cardiac surgeons. Well, they got together a meeting with the heads of the program in the hospital and said, look, our complication rate's too high. We've got to do something about it. And so the heads of the program said, well, use your conscience, but you're not going to get enough pay, and the program's not going to do well if we don't keep sending them here. So, you know, they had Mm. more surgeries to do. So there is now a lawsuit out. 
and there was a young man, a young, and I want to say boy, but he was a three-year-old who yeah. died after heart surgery in 2016. Right. <clears throat> They're suing, not for the death in and of itself, but for the concept that the hospital should have told them, look, we have a higher rate of complications. You need to know that before you decide to have your surgery here. And none of them told the family that. They've told the family that we have a heart surgery program at a world-class hospital for pediatric patients, Yeah, and he died. And yeah. so, you know, this be- brings on a very special issue in that systemic problems in hospitals pose a risk for patients, and they should be warned. So if you have a hospital where you have a very high infection rate after knee surgery, like a hospital I know, yeah. they should be warned and say, well, look, you know, the hospital average rate for a hospital in a knee infection is X, and we're 1.5X or 2.0 times X. Should and they're not be, being warned. Should there be some sort of standard piece of paper? Because I've had surgery yeah. and I've had to sign you know, nine pieces of paper. And, and I think that that's coming. Okay. Um, in the informed consent. Now, when you had your surgery, they handed you nine pages. Did you stop and read every one? No, not really. No. And so that's the problem. And then there's a complication and the patients are upset. Yeah. And it says there in black and white, which you signed and was witnessed, that right. there was a possible complication. Yeah. Now, complications after, after surgery happen. And sometimes they're avoidable. And they happen in the best programs. But the question is, what's the percentage rate of the complications, death, um, serious injury without death, infection? And and do we need to know? And so that's coming, I believe. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that I can't believe is that UNC fought this. I mean, don't you think if you had a program with a 50% rate, you hid that from patients you had cardiologists who said, we don't want to send our children, our own children, to your program. Right. And yet they went ahead and and did surgeries as though nothing were wrong in, in terms of what they said to patients and mm-hmm. patients' families, that they would just settle this out of court. Yeah. But it's not. There are millions of dollars on the line for shutting down a program or pausing it. Yes. You know, strategically pausing a medical program – I, have you ever heard of that? Yeah. And yeah. you know what happens? What? The programs that pause yeah. and are honest and say, look, there's a problem here. Before we do surgeries again, we want to solve the problem. They do well. No, okay. Honesty is always, I hate to use this cliche, honesty is always the best policy. Now, let me tell you a story about me. Okay. okay. I had done, I've done 4,000 pacemakers. And the major complication of the pacemaker is a dropped lung where you put the needle in under the collarbone to get into that big vein. In some people, the lung is so close to the skin that you scratch the surface of the lung. It leaks a little bit. And then, you know, you've got to go in and reinflate the lung. Yeah. I've had five. Okay. okay. Eh, it's one in a hundred. So I'm 395 behind. And so that's good. Sure. I have a technique that I've tried to teach other doctors that works. And, you know, all five of those were in the first five years that I did my um, pacemaker. That's good. Now, there are other potential complications. And one of them is a boneheaded error that I made. Okay. There's two wires (laughs) 
one goes on the top yeah and one goes on the bottom yes well i was doing this case and you know you have to be very careful you read off the serial number uh-huh and i thought i did and so the next day the rep of the company the representative of the company who's checking the pacemaker called me up and says um no no you put the a wire which is the atrium in the v hole and the v wire in the a hole he said it that way. Absolutely. Because okay. I was All right. the you-know-what. Sure. So I go up to talk to the family and the patient, and some of the healthcare personnel were, like, scared and said, what are you going to tell them? And I looked at him. I said, the truth. Yeah. I made a mistake. Yes. I walked in, and this lady that I've taken care of and the husband I've taken care of for years, I walked in and told him exactly the mistake I made. Yes. And that we had to go back down, open up the wound, <laughs> switch the wires right. back to where they should have been, yeah. and close them up. Now, what does that entail as a risk for the patient? Not a dropped lung because I'm not going to go back in with a needle. The wires are fine. They're just in the wrong place. Yeah. Okay? So, so? you know what they said? Yeah. Ah, oh, doctor, we followed everybody. Nobody's perfect. That's right. So I went down and switched it. They didn't get an infection. Yep. I still see the patient. And what I couldn't believe is that some healthcare personnel would have actually thought that I was going to lie to the patient. Right. No way. Right. And so taking this to the nth degree, I think that UNC should have talked to this family when they raised the question and said, yes, we made a mistake. We're going to settle. Let's have the two lawyer teams talk it over. Right. Now, what may have happened is that the lawyer team for the plaintiff might have asked for more money than UNC thought it was worth. Mm-hmm. But let me tell mm-hmm. you, the jury's going to support this family. Oh, there's and I've no got, way. No, but there's another thing involved also. You're reading off a New York Times article yeah. about this young girl who died. If... You needed to buy good publicity to wipe away bad publicity. Absolutely. You'd spend millions of dollars. Yes. Okay. This is well, there's some I, I, value to keeping your hospital off. Right. The New York Times medicine page or well, science page. I mean, do you pay twenty million or do you pay five million? Give me my checkbook. I'll write. Yeah. It. You know, John, John Edwards' biggest case. How much he won? Yeah. What? Twenty million. Twenty million, and it was a baby that the cover of the pool intake for the filter had come off, Mm -hmm. and the kid went. Oh my my gosh! Yes, yes, and sucked his guts out. Yes. So why didn't they settle? Probably because they wanted too much money for them. But I can tell you right now. I mean, juries are given billion-dollar verdicts against companies. Okay. So let's just say honesty is always the best policy, and when it comes to medical mistakes, the lawyers won't tell you that. All right. They tell you to Stonewall. We need to smile a bit, which means that we are going to advance the story on perineal. Is, am I saying the word right? Perineal. Perineal sunning. Can I use the B word? You can go to <laughs> hearthealthradio.com. You can use the B word. It's about as close as you could go to. Um, it is uh, essentially bottom sunning. Um, and we've talked well, specifically my about was it. not bottom. Okay, but right. that's it, okay. I'm glad you said bottom, bottom instead sunny. of what I was going to say. You can go to hearthealthradio.com and find out all about this. Somebody was suggesting on one of the social media platforms on Instagram that you should just 
strip yourself naked and point your bottom to the sun. And that seemed like a bad idea. Well, actor Josh Brolin. He's one of my favorite actors. Well, he's a terrific actor. Uh, he did it and said it ruined his whole day. Maybe uh, more, more than, than his whole day. Maybe more than one Let's day. Let's put it this way. He's lying <laughs> he got, prone he on a, his stomach. He got a sunburn where the sun is never supposed to go. It's called bunburn. Hearthealthradio.com is where you can find out the details. Coming up, we'll talk about fake news, including aphrodisiacal foods. I know I'm saying that wrong, but foods that are supposed to be aphrodisiacs. And your phone calls, 919-860-9783 on the Heart Health Radio Network. You're a fraud, you're a fake, and you are lying through your teeth. You're irrelevant, malevolent, and weak. You're fake news, fake news. We might be the only radio show making a big deal about your fake news. Well, the reason. Yeah. It's because it can affect your health if you believe this stuff. Yeah. And it can affect the way you look at medicine in general. Yeah. Um, and I, I, the bit, just unbelievable. Some of the stuff I get, and it's not just Facebook. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And I, I look at news feeds, flip, flip book or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I look at uh, the Apple um, news feeds. Yeah. All the time, because I'm looking for these stories. Now, the interesting one, and it's kind of lighthearted, um, this this website called Your, Yours. Okay. And, and they talk about all sorts of crazy health things. And the one that I thought was fake this week was the unsuspecting aphrodisiac foods that'll boost your libido. Now, there is no evidence that this will happen. And I, I'm worried <laughs> that maybe yeah. wives may not feed their husbands this food. Might not. And might not. I right. Mean, you know, right. I've got situations like that all the time. So the first one was Greek <laughs> yogurt. Okay. Give yeah. me a break. I've had Greek yogurt and it did nothing. <laughs> honey. Well, I mean, how often do we eat honey? Honey? Does it make a difference? Honey? It's odd. I thought he was calling me. Yeah. I okay. thought he was trying to get my attention. All right. The so, best one. Greek yogurt, honey, what? Pine nuts. Pine nuts. Oh, yeah, now, okay. if you, when you finish chewing them, your breath is so bad <laughs> that even if you do want to be with your special other, she's sure. going to run away. Avocados. Now, I can tell you right now, I go to Mexican restaurants all the time. Yeah. And I have... You know, this, the avocado, oh, God, what is it called? Guac. Guacamole. Yeah. And I'm telling you, no. No. All right, so the worst <laughs> one they say. I mean, maybe not on you. The worst one is watermelon. Watermelon. Now, how many times have you been out on a, a hot day in the summer? Sure. And you're having a cookout and you're eating watermelon? I mean, <laughs> you tell me. if Okay, callers. Yeah. If there's ever a caller who has eaten one of these things and we talked about and had, you know, an aphrodisiacal spell, call us and describe what happened. All right. The next bit. Yeah. And this is getting back to what I think is hurting the medical profession is 350 doctors have signed a petition. Yeah. To get the Congress to bring Trump in uh. and impeach him because they say he's, he's got a mental health issue. Now, 
we talked about this before. It happened with Barry Goldwater. And this is, listeners, yeah. this is a political issue. This is not an issue of mental health. Remember, Trump is examined at the military hospitals in Bethesda, right. the, the Naval Hospital, Walter Reed. Part of that examination is a mental health examination. So they're not just saying his ticker's good. They're not just saying he's breathing well. And in fact, they do say some negative things about him, that he's obese. Okay. Okay. And we're not fat shaming here. Obesity is a medical issue. Now, don't you think they would have alerted some people if the guy had a serious mental health issue? I mean, he's got his finger on the bomb. He is the commander in chief of the military in the United States by the Constitution. So you get 350 physicians, and they're from Yale, they're from Harvard. So mm-hmm. you're going to think these people are telling the truth, and you can't make a medical diagnosis. And mental health is a medical issue on the, if you've never examined the patient. Yes. And I think that this is just wrong. Okay. Now, two things I have, and I hope I can remember both because, you know, I have a cognitive memory issue, so they'll probably diagnose me. Number one. I searched for the name of the researcher who is always out front, doctor, and I've forgotten her name, but she's she's a Yale psychiatrist, always out in front. I'm trying to find for the radio show some audio of her saying these things. Yeah. Guess what? What? She's been saying these things for f- three or four years. Right. Since he became president. And, and she said it during the campaign – and related it to actual events during the campaign. Yeah. Now she's relating it to actual circumstances relating to the impeachment. Okay. So here's a quote from these psychiatrists, okay? Because he can't understand the psychological aspects of impeachment because he said he didn't do anything wrong, he's mentally ill. That is a direct quote right. from this statement. So in other words, if you don't believe that you're being impeached for a reason, and that reason is correct, you are mentally ill. From one person's perspective, and again, I don't care whose politics, you, you know, who you voted for and who you're going to vote for. From one perspective, you can't say, okay, he doesn't believe that certain things are real, okay, because I believe them, but there's a dispute. You right. know what I mean? But see, in their mind, There can be no dispute, even though reasonable people who are intelligent and who are legal experts will say that what he's done is not an impeachable offense. According to the psychiatrist, if you disbelieve it and you have strong feelings like President Trump does, you're mentally ill. Well, the other thing is, if they are against you, if they're out to get you, you're not paranoid. Right. Right, and from the perspective of a lot of other people, not just the president of the United He's States. Paranoid. No, from a, from the perspective of a lot of people, right, they are out to get him. Right. Okay, I'm not I, I'm not yeah. making that up. Now, the, I'm telling you right. what other people are saying. Now they are out to get him. Right, and so we just need whatever your politics are, and yeah. I, I listen. I think that people from both sides have reasoned arguments. That they are not mentally ill for believing one thing or another. Right. But what hurts the medical profession is to see licensed physicians and other quote unquote 
mental health professionals, quote unquote, whatever that means, yeah. declaring that they know 100% for sure that he's mentally ill means that you can't trust the medical profession or at least some people in the medical profession. And that's harmful. Now, the worst thing I saw were mental health professionals who declared on TV and in a written uh, form Mm-hmm. That African American supporters of Trump are mentally ill. That's really? that's what they've said. Now let me tell you. I know some African Americans who are supporters of Trump, yeah. and I know a lot of African Americans who are not supporters of Trump. And the political views that they embrace do not make them mentally ill one way or another. You're telling me that supporting one party over the other. Doesn't make you crazy? Well, it drives me crazy to okay. see these I'm things. Just, but, I'm wondering. But if you see this on Facebook, yeah. do not believe it. Yep. Because a physician cannot make a diagnosis without examining and talking to the patient. Period. He's not the only person running for president who was brittle this week. Right. And uh, I, the, the, this Mrs. Pelosi, whose name I never planned to ever say on television Mm -hmm. she snapped at somebody this week too but you've stood up and said we can't diagnose joe biden either right and so mrs pelosi a wonderful person i'm sure believes stridently yes and and she and what in in her political view yeah if you saw her she was so upset that she was stammering yeah she was at loss for words she had to, at one time uh, in another uh, conference had to ask her um, uh, assistant for help yeah. in remembering something. This right. does not make her mentally ill. Right. And I can't make any judgment about her health All because right. I've not examined her. This is heart health. We're moving totally beyond this in the next half hour of this show, which is coming up. Please stay with us and call us up. This is heart health. <laughs> Now back to Heart Health with Dr. Franklin Weefold on AM680 WPTF. Get better, stay healthy, and spot medical misinformation on Heart Health Radio. The telephone number is 919-860-9783. The waiting room is empty, 919-860-9783. Flu cases are up. I just heard so on the news. Yeah, and I'm worried. Um, There was a hospital in Texas. It's coming our way. Uh, yeah. Nine flu cases this time last year. 1,400, 1,400 cases this Man. year. Man. Now, what's going to happen? Um, the flu apparently is not killing as many people as it did before, but it may mutate and it may get worse. Okay. So if you haven't had your flu shot, and, and for gosh sakes, get your flu shot. Um, people will say that they can get the flu from influenza vaccine. That's not true. It is not a live virus. It is not something that's going to give you the flu. You may get, you know, a little bit of aches and pains, Mm -hmm. maybe a temperature of 99. That's your immune system becoming immune to the influenza virus. Full disclosure. Yeah. You may still get the influenza uh, illness if you've had the influenza vaccine. Right. No influenza vaccine is 100%. But it does reduce the severity of the illness in most who get it. Uh, It's about 70% effective this year. It is important to get the vaccine. Now, if you do get influenza, there is a nice medicine that reduces in most people the severity of the illness. It's called Tamiflu. 
Yeah. Now, what happened? Last year, my sister in California, she's a wonderful lady. She is a public defender, um, a lawyer. She got influenza, and she sat in the emergency room for 15 hours. God had to get, fl- <sighs> had to get uh, intravenous fluids because she was so dehydrated. Yeah. They ran out of Tamiflu. Wow. And so that's the other thing to remember, that it may not be available for you. And you may think, well, if I get influenza, I'll just take Tamiflu. I'm afraid of the shot. Well, they could run out of Tamiflu, and Tamiflu doesn't take away. So please, please get your flu shot. One other quick thing. Yeah. If you go to your physician's office and they do that rapid swab, Mm -hmm. and they say you don't have influenza, you may still have it because there's false negatives. 70% 70% accurate, 30% inaccurate. If you have muscle aches, high fevers, a dry hacking cough, and the influenza test is negative, I think you got influenza. Okay. Okay? Clinical diagnosis. All right. Bill in Wake Forest, thank you very much for calling us up. How you doing, Bill? Doing great. Doing great. Thanks hey. for the call. How are hey. you? Two quick questions for you. Uh, what are the general coronary symptoms indicate the potential need for a pacemaker, and two, how long, on average, does the pacemaker, the equipment itself, last before it has to be replaced? Good questions. So, as I understand it, you want to know what are the symptoms that indicate you may need a pacemaker. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, there are a lot of them, um, and sometimes you're asymptomatic. Uh, you don't feel anything. Most of the times it's dizziness or just flat out passing out. Let me give you an example. The last guy who needed a pacemaker walked into my office with a big stitch wound on his head. And I said, what happened? And he said, I fell down, hit my head. Well, I always like to hear a story. And so his story was he was having a big, big urination, which he held off having, got up, hit the ground, passed out. So I went over, hooked him up to the EKG machine, pushed on his neck, and his heart stopped for eight, nine, ten seconds. And my staff goes running in because I'm telling him to cough. Sometimes a cough will bring it back. I'm, I hit him in the chest. Sometimes that'll bring him back. But it's mostly subtle. You can have either rapid heartbeats followed by dizzy spells where you think you're going to pass out. A pacemaker will not control your rapid heartbeat most of the time, there are certain pacemakers who will shock your heart when the top part's beating fast in AFib. That's rare. But the pacemaker is there to prevent it from slowing down too much. So what happens? You can have blockages of the electricity going to the bottom of the heart. You may not even feel it, but you may have an EKG that puts you at risk. So the doctor will do a monitor for a couple days, seven days, and pick up that intermittently your heart is not passing the electricity through the top part to the bottom part. Then you need a pacemaker to prevent the passing out. So the most important thing, if you're dizzy, if you're having episodes where you feel like you're going to pass out, go to your doctor because they can diagnose that. And then a pacemaker will actually cure that. Now, how long do they last? Unbelievable. When I first started 30 years ago, they lasted two or three years. And then you had to get a new device. The device is not just a battery. It's not just the computer. They don't come in two parts. It's it's one size fits all, one you know device that has the battery and the computer. Now they're lasting 12 to 14 years. And that's not only because the battery works better. It's because the wires, I'll call them wires, they're not sharp. They're leads, L-E-A-D-S. They're soft as spaghetti. And they're better at 
at picking up when the pacemaker needs to, to work, and they're also better at transmitting the electricity in short bursts and in low voltages to the heart muscle. So instead of lasting three, four years when I first started, they're lasting 12 to 14 years, and who knows? The next ones may last 20 years. And this is funny, and not funny, but the, but the companies are actually quote-unquote, hurting themselves, quote-unquote, because they don't need to put more devices in. Yeah. But to their best um, uh, pat on the back, they're doing the right thing. They're smaller, right? They're smaller, they last longer, and mm-hmm. they're more expensive. <laughs> of course they are. That's yeah. how they're making their money. Yeah. So let me ask you, do you think you need a pacemaker? No idea. Are you feeling dizzy? Nope. Oh, so you were just asking for informational purposes. Just for inf- information. Yeah, and uh, so they're I, great. Now. I have, I have had a, an ablation done. Yeah. And AFib uh, was it atrial fib? Yeah, they took out a bunch of circuits. Yeah. Uh, so the only time the, that I would worry yeah. is if your cardiologist says you have an EKG pattern, like a left bundle branch block, where that means that the electricity doesn't get down to the left side of the heart in the normal way along with what they call first gravy block. So that is when the electricity doesn't come from the top part of the heart to the bottom part quickly enough. It puts you at risk. Um, If you've had AFib, you're at slightly higher risk of needing a pacemaker because your electricity already is not right. But an ablation doesn't necessarily put you at higher risk unless they had to do the ablation around what's called the atrioventricular node or the AV node. That is like the traffic stop where you have to pause for a second, or actually it's a millisecond, half a second, before you go down to the bottom part of the heart. So, you know, your cardiologist, if he can do the ablation, I'm sure is smart enough to know if you're at risk for a pacemaker and then what to do to check you out. But if you do get dizzy spells, definitely go back to your cardiologist and say, I'm dizzy, and then let him or her decide how to work you up to see if you need a pacemaker. Yeah, well, I I look at my heart rate, you know, Probably every other day. Uh, I have no issues that I right. can tell. Yeah. But is is there a a rate uh, heart rate that if it's too low that yeah. I should go just and that's something yeah I'm sure I understand low. what you're saying if your heart rate's forty or normally being sixty to seventy does that mean you need a pacemaker? Not necessarily. There are athletes out there, uh, in fact, you know, your weekend athletes who have heart rates in the 40s, and that's because they're in good shape. But generally, if you've had an atrial fibrillation, ablation, or your heart rate's in the 40s, there is a good chance you might need a pacemaker. It depends on how you feel. I've got two patients who run about 40, 41, 42, and one of the ways that I tested them to see if they needed a pacemaker is I put a monitor on to see what happens to their heart rate when they exercise. So suppose it stays 40 when they're trying to exercise. Well, then they generally need a pacemaker because your own heart is supposed to increase the rate to increase your what we call cardiac output or the amount of blood flowing. And if you're exercising, it has to be higher. So there's no one heart rate that says, hey, you're 42, you need a pacemaker. It's sort of an individual thing that you and your doctor work out. Bill, thanks a lot. Have a great day. Appreciate it. Belinda in Middlesex dialed in. Oh, Hi, Belinda. Hey. Think, hey, Belinda. We did a shout-out to you last week. We, we even played did. your favorite song, Stand uh, By Your Man. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm um, getting better every day. 
Awesome. I'm starting to move that arm a little bit more. Yeah, tell us more about. I should. Yeah, tell us about your surgery. What happened? Why uh, you needed it? They thought I had one spot uh, torn on the rotary cuff, but when you or you and the other doctor, anyway, you saw something on the big muscle, and he saw something on the rotary cuff. Well, when he got it, he said he wanted to take a look. Yeah, this is the shoulder, right? Right on the right side. Rotator and, cuff. And the shoulder is, that, a, yeah, the most complicated joint there is. And he said that he was going to go in and look at the big muscle. Well, when he got in there then, I had two tears in the rotary cuff, two tears in the big muscle, and a shredded ligament plus is that, like, is that like shredded wheat? Wow. Shredded, yeah. And your shoulder's a very complicated joint. And you don't necessarily have to have an injury to have problems with your shoulder. Because think about it. Move your shoulder now. It's got to go in all directions. It's got to go up. It's got to go down. It's got to go right. got to go left. And you can actually rotate your shoulder. That's what's called a rotator cuff. Yeah, I can't. Do you want to give a shout out to your doctor? Who was it? Uh, Dr. Romaine. Romaine. Yeah. Yeah. He trained... At the institution I trained at, Johns Hopkins. He's a great guy. I sent a lot of patients to Dr. Roman. He's a um, wonderful guy. But to Uh-oh. start with, the best patient, I mean, the best doctor was you because you saw there was something wrong with it and needed some attention. Who is that? You. You. Well, yeah. you know, let me just tell you, I try. Um, I am an internal medicine specialist, so a lot of people say, what's a heart doctor doing? <laughs> well, you've had a lot of heart problems, right, Belinda? That's right. And what does chronic pain do to a heart? It wears it out. Yeah. So when Belinda told me her shoulder was bad, we tried a few simple things. We tried some analgesics. We tried some anti-inflammatories. They didn't work, and she was still in pain. Mm-hmm. So to reduce Belinda's risk of having another heart event due to pain and due to high levels of stress hormones, we checked her shoulder out. And as this heals, she's going to be at lower risk for heart trouble in the future. Belinda, thank you. Stand by your man. Uh, well, I, w- I did, and I did as long as I yeah, could, but and you I'd know, do it again. Remember, he wants you to be happy. Find a man and stand by him. Oh, my. Uh, you know better than that, Dan. And I told you, when they made Ray O'Neill, God made him. He broke the mold, and he ain't another one, and I won't be finding another one. And my great aunt said there's two out there for everyone, a good one and a bad one. And I had my bad one to start with, and I've had my good one the last time, so I ain't looking no more. Well, I appreciate you, and I love you. You have a great day. Love you, too, Dr. Weepow. Thanks. Thank you, Belinda. I appreciate you calling. Now, we're going to talk about early cholesterol treatment. Teenagers? Um, Adolescents? Some would advocate teenagers. I'm going to advocate 20-year-olds. Okay. Taking three aspirin a week reduces your chances of something bad happening. I, I've forgotten the story, but Dr. Weefault has it. He'll talk about that. Also, we'll check in with Carson in Creedmoor in just a moment. Telephone number 919-860-9783. Get better, stay healthy, and spot medical misinformation just by listening to Heart Health Radio. Now back to Heart Health with Dr. Franklin Weefold on AM680 WPTF. And, of course, Dr. Franklin Weefold is a cardiologist and internal medicine specialist with Millennia Cardiovascular. The show is not about generating more people in the front door at Millennia Cardiovascular. It's well, I, had to, I had to fix my front door. You had to fix because people are keep coming in. It was in. opening too much. Oh, okay. All right. We're going to talk about that three aspirin a week suggestion and early cholesterol treatment, but Carson has been waiting long enough. Hi. 
Hello there. How you doing? Uh, what I'd like to, uh, to speak about is the fact that uh, if you're allergic to eggs, uh, you're not supposed to get the flu shot. Oh, yeah. I, I, I forgot I to mention that. Years ago, and I was allergic to eggs. I can eat eggs, but so I don't take the flu shot. Now, last year, they gave me some numbers I could call to get a flu shot that wouldn't interfere with the egg problem. Right. So I'd like for you to discuss that, and I will hang up. That is a well, great question. Well, you In don't fact, have to hang up, but we yeah, respect that. Yeah. If you want to take, you, you want to listen to us on the radio. Thank you, Carson. And, All right. and All right. I was going to mention that. In yeah. fact, in the break, uh, Dave and I talked about talking about flu shots. And right. I was going to say, if you're allergic to eggs, most healthcare professionals would say not to get the flu shot. Um, I will tell you this. Yeah. I read an article from a uh, infectious disease specialist. Yeah, who recommended those with egg allergies get one? I don't do that. But here's what I'm going to tell you to do: is ask your doctor if you should get the flu shot. Yep, yep, and yep. keep one of those Purell bottles handy. Stay away from sick people, and you know what to do. And the other thing is, this is something very interesting. There is a very active and great uh, primary care practice is called Horizon Family. Yeah. And they get inundated. So you know what they do? What? They say don't come into the office because you're going to spread it to the other patients. Good. And it's what the, it's fairly easy to diagnose influenza and fairly easy to call in a uh, this medicine Tamiflu. I don't do that. What I do is I have masks mm-hmm. and the hand sanitizers at the door, yep. and I put one of my employees at the door, and I have them put the mask on, do their uh, hands, and one more thing, yeah, put on gloves. I, I have them put on gloves. And so they have a mask on, they have gloves on. Now here's the problem. What? I have a real serious hearing problem, a high-frequency <laughs> hearing loss, and I need yes. to read your lips yes. and listen to the sounds. So what I sometimes have them do is lift up the mask so I can read their lips and then put the mask back down. Three aspirin a week. Yes, I believe it. For what? Anti-inflammation. Okay. And it's been studied in hundreds of thousands of people. Really, really good study that just came out. And the bottom line is they did a study. Three aspirin a week cut the risk of colon cancer. They cut the risk of coronary artery disease. And how is it? Aspirin's an anti-inflammatory. It yeah. works not only in the platelets, but it, it reduces inflammation of the arterial walls. It reduces inflammation of your own or the production of inflammatory proteins by your own immune cells. So there was this controversy we talked about before, aspirin for heart disease in people who were over the age of 80. I've had some patients come in and say, oh, that study showed that you shouldn't take aspirin at all, and that's not true. What that study that you may have read showed is that if you're 80 years old and you've never had a heart attack, it's probably not indicated, probably not, to take an aspirin for prevention. This study is an all-comers. If you take an aspirin three times a week and your doctor says it's safe for you to take, there are people who should not be taking aspirin, right. that it may reduce your risk of getting colon cancer. Is this the full strength or is this the baby aspirin? Enteric-coated aspirin, 81 milligrams, and I'm glad okay. you asked. Yeah. It's not the full strength uh, aspirin that was studied. And I think that 
it is a good thing to speak to your physician about whether it would be safe and good for you to take this regimen. 81 milligrams, three times a week. That's the baby ass. Yes. The, the, big, the big ones are like 350. 325. 325. You know 325? No. They had something in ancient England called a grain. Okay. Did you know that? A measurement? A measurement. A grain. And a grain turned out to be 325 milligrams of aspirin, which is, no, I'm sorry, five grains. And believe it or not, when I started med- – this is how old I am. We would write five grains. Five grains. And I think it's a grain of yeah. wheat. Well, I think that, that – which, which English people call corn. Yeah, I think it was five grain of wheat if you were up to three stone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or if you were seven hands and high. And if you could drive f- – right. 14 furlongs per fortnight. <laughs> That's right. Very good. Okay. All right. Early cholesterol treatment in adolescence. I mean, we're, we're studying well, cholesterol yes. in young people now. Now, what they did, and since, it's, since we've had cholesterol medications now since 1994. Okay. How many years is that? Do the math. I have no idea. 25? Sure. So they were able to follow. 25-year-olds who were on cholesterol medication and 25-year-olds who weren't. Okay. And guess what? The ones who got started, and this was so controversial, the ones who got started in their 20s who had high cholesterol and started on statins and at least had some reduction in their cholesterol level, but it's also anti-inflammatory. People don't realize Cholesterol medications work also by reducing the amount of inflammation in your body. That's the, you know, your immune system in hyperdrive producing all these chemicals that not only fight off infections, but can damage your body in too high amounts. 29% risk in those who had risk factors. And I'm talking about family history, Mm -hmm. smoking, obesity, and diabetes. If you took a a statin in that setting where you had those risk factors, 29% had it when they didn't take it, and 6%. Now, let me, I just did spoke Jim Gimli Gook, but let me tell you it again. If you had the risk factors, you know, family history, male gender in certain cases, but females as well, diabetes, high, high uh, blood pressures, and uh, high cholesterol. If you so took a so statin, if you're me. Yeah. yeah. You took a statin, 6% risk by the time you hit 50 yeah. of having a fatal heart attack or non-fatal heart attack. Yeah. 29% risk if you didn't take the statin. Okay. So this changes my practice now because I wasn't treating them. I was saying diet, exercise, we didn't have evidence that treating this young would make a difference. Now, if you're healthy, no family history – no history of high blood pressure, no history of diabetes. Mm-hmm. It's not proven that this will help you. But if you have those risk factors and yeah. a cholesterol above 110 LDL, we only worry about the LDL, the bad cholesterol. It's never been proven that any of these other risk factors can be modified. So you can't modify your HDL being low. You can modify your triglycerides, but it's not proven that it reduces the risk. If your LDL is high and you have those risk factors I talked about and you're 25 years old and your doctor recommends a statin, he or she has evaluated you and says it's safe to take, then I would take it. Might be a good idea to stop eating stuff out of boxes. That's Uh just me saying, you know, know, some of the processed food is – This goes without saying that you need to do diet 
and exercise. Good. Okay. But statins will reduce your risk from 29% to 6%, regardless if you exercise and eat right. Any major concern for side effects in statins? You always have to be careful because it can cause severe liver damage. It can cause severe uh, muscle damage. Now, I have 6,000 patients. I've only had to take two off because of those indications. Wow. Yeah. That's good. And the side effects are low. And don't think you're going to get muscle aches because guess what? Hmm. You're going to get them. Oh, you could always. Yeah, but also there's a big psychological factor. And if you go into taking a statin thinking the risk is low, then more than likely you're not going to have the muscle aches and the joint aches that that a lot of people complain about. We've got to go, but please find out more at hearthealthradio.com. The proceeding was meant for information purposes only. Before taking any action on what was just discussed, consult your medical doctor.